Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. I'm going to ask you today to turn to a passage that's rather familiar, especially if you're one of the men that study with us on Wednesday night, Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to begin our reading in verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. We went through verse 19 of this chapter Wednesday night. By the way, men, we'd love to have you if you want to come and be a part of this study. Uh, we, we get into the nitty-gritty on Wednesdays at 6 o'clock, and uh, we meet here in the worship center. And so we'd love to have you come and be a part of that. But I want us to read verse 20 and 21 this morning of Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Lord, bless your word today. It is about the year A.D. 49, pretty close to that. Paul has returned from his first missionary journey. If you wanted to find this place, actual event in Scripture, you would turn to Acts chapter 15. Don't do that right now. We'll have enough going on. But in Acts 15... We're about at that spot as far as the historical record is concerned. Paul has finished a trip to the churches in the area called Galatia. It's part of uh, the province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. He's visited quite a few of the churches, but as soon as he gets back, he hears bad news. He finds out that There's what we would call Judaizers, those who teach the way of Judaism have infiltrated the church, and even though they themselves claim to be Christians, uh, they are beginning to preach some additions to the gospel. They are beginning to tell people about, well, there's certain rituals and and things that you will need to do. And we covered this uh, pretty clearly throughout uh, our study on Wednesday night. But they're beginning to get interested in these things and things like circumcision. And it's not just that you get saved or trust in Christ, but there are other things that you could add to your salvation. And they're fascinated with them. And as a matter of fact, Paul is going to tell them somebody has bewitched you. And he said, I can't believe that it happened so quickly because I came and I preached to you a gospel that was about Christ and Christ alone. 
But somehow or another, these false teachers have come in and they have begun to teach you things that are not in accordance to what I had preached to you when I was there. So he begins to tell them, look, as soon as I got back from the mission trip, and of course you know look means I'm paraphrasing. He said, as soon as I returned from my first mission trip, I got called away from Antioch down to Jerusalem, and we had a meeting about this very thing. There was some idea afloat that maybe the Gentiles who were going to accept Christ are going to need to be circumcised. In other words, they need to become Jews first, and then they can, can become Christians. And Paul is railing against this. As a matter of fact, he said, I went to the meeting. He tells the Galatian church this. He said, I took with me a Greek Christian named Titus. He was not circumcised and I didn't make it happen. I took him just like he was. Barnabas went with me and we heard what these false teachers had to say. And he said that we did not listen to them for one hour. We set the record straight. We let them know that Gentiles do not have to become like Jews before they can become Christians. That circumcision even itself for Jews does not save them or make them any more saved than anyone else. Now, we won't spend a lot of time here, but I would tell you that's a great warning for us in our churches today. Sometimes we act like people need to become like us first, and then they can become Christians. And it's a subtle thing. We have, you know, we all have our things. I don't care who you are. Uh, if you're old fundamental Baptist, whatever, you've got certain things you just feel like, well, we're saved. But I'm going to tell you something, amen. You need to listen to the so-and-so when he preaches, or you need to have the right Bible translation, or you need to sing out of a hymnal, or, or you, you, you need to do this style of worship or whatever. And those things become incredibly important to us, and we may not say it ver or verbalize it, but we kind of feel like if all churches were like ours, they would just be better off. And it's not just the old traditionalists either. Man, I've heard a lot of criticism from time to time from some of the more modern worship and, and the more contemporary worship styles about those old hymns and using hymnals or whatever. I can just tell you now, we all have our stuff and we all have our personalized kind of thing that, and we won't say, now you're not saved if you don't do it this way, but we almost do. I can tell you, whatever your style may be, as long as it honors God, people do not have to become like you before they can become like Jesus Christ. It's a great lesson for us. As a matter of fact, Paul in Galatians 3, I'll just read it. He'll later tell them that in Christ, verse 26, you are all children of God. That's in Christ you are. Through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ. Or who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that's to clear up the matter. And we do not need to ever forget about that. Colossians 3.3, he will later say to another church, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It is like I'm a sinner, and I'm unworthy of heaven. I'm unworthy of ever standing before a holy God. And it is, it is, I'm just trying to trying to explain it, so please bear with me. But it is like even though I am not worthy of salvation or worthy to spend eternity with God, it is like Christ wraps me up in Himself and says, it's okay, He's with me. Wow. And that is the only chance I have in all the world. It's the only chance I have. God has to judge sin Otherwise, he's not just. I, I'm amazed at how hypocritical we are about the justice of God. People talk about, well, I don't think this God of the Old Testament is just in all of that. Let me tell you, God is a God of justice. And someone had to pay for our sins. And if I had to pay for my own, I could not do it. It, it wouldn't make any difference. My efforts were, were worthless to do that. So when people talk about, well, forgiveness of sin, and yet they don't really believe it comes from Christ and His finished work on the cross, I want to ask them sometime, well, how are your sins paid for? How is it that, that they, what did they do? Did they just go away? And I, I know that, you know, you've heard me say this, but we live in a world today that think you can take things like student debt and medical bills and, and make them disappear. Whoosh, they're just gone. But what happens is at the end of the year when the rest of us do our taxes, whoosh, it's just gone. Somebody has to pay for that. And Christ going to the cross, coming and living in this world, and dying on that cross for our sins should prove to us for now and forevermore that God is a God of justice. He didn't change the rules midway. He didn't say, I'm God, I can do whatever I want to do. He says, no, only death can pay for sin, and it has to be a perfect sacrifice. And the only way that that is going to happen is I'm going to have to go and live in that world and die in that world and be raised from the dead in that world to pay for the sins of Michael Snellgrove and everyone else. Well, I want us to take a look at the verse we read. In Christ alone, in Christ alone, I'm not sure if uh, it was just a leading of the Spirit or somebody got a hold of uh, my notes ahead of time and uh, figured out to put that on the song list. I, I just think it is so awesome. We stand in Christ alone. So let's just take a look at this verse. And I want us to begin by looking at my death in Christ alone. We're looking at verse 20, and I can tell you, you're going to be amazed how much is in this one verse. First of all, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's a powerful way of saying it, but there's not a wasted word in that whole statement. 
soon as tau Roma, I'm not speaking in tongues, but soon as tau Roma is the word here for having been crucified. Now, let's get to English, okay? This word is a perfect passive indicative, okay? So, some of you may be thinking, no, that's still Greek to me. But all of that is important, the way Paul says this one single word. First of all, it's passive. It's not something that I did. It was something that was done to me or for me. So, when he says, I have been crucified. That's passive voice. He is not saying that I crucified myself. It's not like God told me if you'll just do this and this and one or two other things, I can save you. No, he says from the very beginning, even dying to myself, that had to be a work of Christ inside of me. That had to be something that God did. And we cannot emphasize this enough. There is no part of my salvation that I bring to the table. It is all something that God does for us. He calls us and and He saves us and He, he, through His power, helps us to crucify those old ways and to live in Him with this new life. But it is passive voice in that I don't do it. It is something that God has to do for me. As a matter of fact, in verse 19, and remember verses and chapters were added to the Bible far later than its original writings. But in verse 19, it ends with, so that I might live for God. We probably should start verse 20 with that statement. So that I might live for God. It was impossible for me. I didn't, wasn't able to say, well, you know what, my life's kind of ragged. And uh, I, I'm kind of down on my luck. I think I'll try this Jesus thing. Or, 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 or maybe you were really serious about it. And you thought, you know, it's time for me to straighten up and clean up my life and all of that and get right with God. You cannot do that. The only way we can live for God is for God to start that work in our lives himself by his own power. We cannot do it on our own. It's also a perfect verb, and in the Greek, this would mean it's a past action, but it has lasting results. It's never, ever going to change. I think one of the saddest things that ever happened to some denominations is when they discovered they could manipulate people by threatening them with them losing their salvation. I think that is so sad. How could you lose something you had nothing to do with to start with? You didn't bring it about. It wasn't something you brought about in your own life. It was something that God did for you. You could, you were hopeless. We were absolutely without any hope before God. So how could we possibly lose something that we did not acquire even on our own? It has lasting a lasting effect forever and ever. One last thing about our death in Christ alone, crucified with Him. A young Christian asks an older Christian one time, what does it really mean to be crucified with Christ? The older believer, 
I believe I read this in Daily Bread. I don't remember where exactly. The older believer replied, it means three things to be crucified with Christ. A man on a cross, number one, is facing in only one direction. Number two, he is not going back. And number three, a man on a cross has no further plans of his own. I don't know how to say it a different way. I don't know how to emphasize it so we finally get it. But I can tell you Christ is not interested in being an attachment or part of your life that you've already planned and you've decided to just add him to it. No, we have to start out by dying to all of those things. Hopes, dreams, worries, fears. We have to be crucified so we can follow God. Our death in Christ alone. My life in Christ alone. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I've been crucified, so I'm dead. But it's not me anymore that, that lives. It's Christ living in me. And when he lives in us, it just changes everything. Uh, Dr. Alan Coase, a, a, a New Testament scholar, says it is like a reorientation of our thoughts. When Christ is living in our lives, it manifests itself on the outside. It, that, that's when you get to the point that you stop arguing about, well, I wonder if I could do this and still be a Christian or, or you know, I, I, I don't think there's really anything wrong with this or that or whatever it might be. You get away from that legalism and you let Christ live his life inside of you. That no more defenses. You're, you're done trying to validate your sins and shortcomings or make them right. You've already confessed all of that, died to all of that. Personal demands. I, 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 you know, I'm a Christian and I think people ought to act this way or that way or, or they should treat me with respect or give me some measure of validation. You get beyond all of that because it is no longer you who live. He says, it is not I who lives. And matter of fact, <laughs> that's a great place to just stop in that verse. It is no longer I. Sometimes we get what I would call I trouble. And that's when I think it's about me. But he says, no. He says, the I is there no longer. It's no longer I. That I that demanded respect and, and demanded that things be a certain way and had expectations for everybody around them, that is the very I that dies. It is no longer I who lives. I can tell you, the most frustrated person you're ever going to meet in church is the one still trying to serve that old self and still letting that old self with its legalism make demands on their life. Because I'm going to tell you what that person will do. That person will also start requiring that all the rest of us meet their standards. And they're not going to meet them, and we're not going to meet them. That's a miserable person. People like that, I can tell you, they're hard to pastor. It's hard to ever satisfy them. They feel like it's all about effort and hard work and, and, and don't do this or that and 
get stricter about your life and they come to churches with a, a two handfuls of expectations and, and sometimes they'll ruin their marriages the same way, honestly. They lose jobs over it. They, they lose other relationships in their life. They are a miserable person because it is still that big I that is very much alive in them. My death, my life in Christ alone. Thirdly, my faith in Christ alone. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I have, this is the paradox. I'm dead, but still, I am alive. I'm in this world, but he says the life that I now live, I, I live by faith in the Son of God. Man, you know, that's pretty awesome. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. And I love it when Jesus prays for us. How, how, how cool is it in John 17 when Jesus has a conversation within the Godhead? Because he's praying to the Father. And he's praying for you and me. Man, a lie. I don't even think I want to bother somebody that Jesus prays for. Boy, that could lead to some bad things. He loves us enough. He, he says this in John 17, verse 15. My prayer is not, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Man. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God. And I'm going to tell you something. Until he calls us home, or until he comes and takes his church home, we are going to have to live in this flesh by faith. We have no choice. There's some going to be things that we're just not going to be able to wrap our mind around. I, I, I love Habakkuk where he says in the very second verse of chapter 1, the prophet Habakkuk. How long, O Lord? I remember that, I believe, from last week. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? He is writing to the people of Judah, crying out to God because he knows the Babylonians are coming, but he cannot wrap his mind around it. God, how could you possibly let people so wicked and vile come and destroy your people? I just don't understand it, God. How you could allow something like this to happen. As a matter of fact, I like this verse as well. We hardly mention it, but in verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, these these Babylonians, he says, their justice and authority originate within themselves. They decide what's right. They decide what's wrong. If they won't accept something, they do. But they believe everything is subjective and they just determine whatever it is they want to do. They just kind of baptize it into their thinking and they are their authority. They don't even recognize you, God. Does that not remind you of the world in which we live today? And then in 2.4, he says this, a verse that's quoted in Romans and Galatians and in Hebrews. He says, the righteous, the just, they shall live by faith. And that living by faith is not easy sometimes. 
It, it, it'd be great, easy, a lot better if we could live by sight, but we don't. We live by faith because we're going to see things and hear things that just absolutely are going to be devastating to us. It's going to make us wonder about God. It's going to make us wonder about right and wrong. It's going to make us doubt the Bible sometimes. This world is not going to make sense to those who are in it, but who are not of it. I re jotted this down this morning early. George and Kathy Schultz, I know you know them. I wish you could have met Kate. I still remember her favorite verse, her favorite passage of Scripture. It's in Habakkuk 3, 17 and 19. He said, she said uh, Habakkuk says, if the fig trees, if they don't grow figs, and there may be no grapes on the vines. There may be no olives growing and no food growing in the fields. There may be no sheep in the pens and no cattle in the barns. But I will still be glad in the Lord and I will rejoice in God my Savior. And if you never met Kate or don't know about her, I can tell you, she was a faithful servant of God that was preparing her life for the mission field. She was all ready to go. One day she had a pain in her leg. Thought nothing of it much, I'm sure, at first. I, I don't know all the details of that, but come to find out that she had osteocarcinoma, which is bone cancer. And she didn't get to go to the mission field. She didn't get to spend her life there. So she could have easily just thought, well, God, what kind of joke is this? You lead me to do something, and then my health won't allow me to do it. And I want to tell you that her testimony was powerful. She never said those things. If she did, I never heard them. As a matter of fact, when she gave her testimony here, if you remember that day, she stood here and cried and asked God to forgive her for ever questioning him or feeling sorry for herself or any of that. My daughter was here that day and my daughter has surrendered to a life of mission work because of the testimony of Kate, and I don't know how many more have done the same thing because they met that young lady. Things don't always make sense to us. We have to live by faith. Our world today, my heart breaks. We got a war in the Middle East where innocent people are dying every day. And, and I, I don't, however the politics of all of that is, if we could just turn our eyes away from that for a moment. It, when you think of the Palestinians and those who do not support Hamas, and yeah, in 2006, the Palestinians voted Hamas in as the political party to lead the nation. But I can tell you, they were like we are in America sometimes. They didn't have good choices to start with. Hamas was a terrorist group. They did know when they voted them in that Hamas's goal was to wipe Israel completely off the map. 
they had stated that clearly. But those poor souls, some of them who are not a part of that terrorist group, they've been trying for years to figure out how in the world can we have some kind of measure of peace. And so I don't care where it is. When I see innocent people suffering and dying, and, and I can just tell you, when wicked people rise up and they start bombing other innocent people, sometimes we just have no choice. But I got to tell you something, friend, in a world full of wickedness, to see those who are innocent suffering, sometimes it can make us question God. I started out as a kid growing up in this world with a lot of hope. I thought, you know, the evil and the wicked, one day they'll get theirs. But the longer I've lived, I've realized sometimes they'll get yours too. Wickedness runs rampant in this world. And oh, there's going to be a day when God's going to stand to his feet and say, that's enough. And he's going to call home his bride and you and I are not going to want to be here when he takes care of the wickedness in this world. That's why I have to thank him that I have died in Christ, that my life is in Christ, that my faith is in Christ. I have to live, live by that faith. Oh, oh Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. No matter how much you beg me, I'm not going to sing. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. How cool will that be when we quit having to live by faith? I'm not all that good at it anyway. Really? We get to live by sight. We don't have to wonder, is God awesome? We get to see it every single day for all eternity. When my faith shall be sight, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. My death in Christ, our life in Christ, our faith in Christ, our identity in Christ alone. Verse 20, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I, I don't want to get all gooey on you this morning, but I married the best looking girl I ever dated. Okay? I don't think she, oh, yeah, she is here. I, well, do I feel stupid? No, I know she's here, and I don't mind saying it in front of her. And I, I, I tell you, when I go places with her, I like having her close by me. Because I know people look at me and go, man, you must have been rich. Phew. How drunk did you get her? I don't care. I don't care. She's my little arm candy. I love that woman. I'm telling you something else that's even more amazing. God loves me. God loves me. And the more I can find my identity in that, that God loves me, it helps me to not worry so much about who all doesn't love me. Now, I know I opened my heart up about all of that last, last week. I still want to get Rich Cox to sign my Bible for me. 
one of those that can just let things roll off his back and not care. I, I, I worry too much about what people think sometimes, but I can tell you, I get over it and get through it because of my identity in Christ. The fact that he loves me. He loves me. And then my salvation in Christ alone gave himself up for me. Paradontos is a word that means to offer up. It's not to just give. It's to give over or to surrender or to deliver. So we should read it more than just he gave his life for me. He gave his life up for me. That's the sacrificial part. He was willing to die uh, as a sacrifice for my sin. That's, that's, that's why my salvation is in Christ alone. And the Lord in heaven knows I've done so many terrible things. I can be so selfish. I can be self-righteous. I can be all kinds of things even to this very day. And I do not deserve it. But my sins are paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is the only hope I have. And it's the only hope you have is to let the blood of Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, pay for our sins. And then last of all, my righteousness is in Christ alone. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. Ooh, how could you do that? That's serious business. Nullifying the grace of God? How could you possibly do that? What sin is it that you could commit that would put you in such a state of eternal damnation and hopelessness? He said, no, I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You know, again, it may not make sense to us. We may be thinking, well, so what if they circumcised each other? So what if they kept some of the Jewish law? What's the big deal with that? Well, here's the big deal. It's either all by grace or it's all by works. I know it may sound innocent. Why not just leave them alone? They'll get over it or whatever. No, Paul knew it's not just something you're doing. You are believing that it adds to your salvation. And I can tell you, we as Christians, we need to be careful about this. Sometimes we think because of our denomination or because we read the right Bible translation or we listen to the right men of God preach His Word, sometimes we can feel maybe just a little more saved because of that. Maybe just a pinch. I don't care what it is that we are. Oh, I'm Reformed. I know some others that will tell you quickly, I'm a Baptist. Not just a Baptist. No, I'm an old Bible-thumping KJV Baptist, fundamentalist, whatever, makeup, hating, whatever all that is. And we can say if we want to that, that well, but we, we know we're saved by grace in Christ. You don't sound like it. We sound like sometimes maybe we just... Or, 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 or at a little further along in our salvation than maybe some others who haven't quite figure, figured all of these things out. I remember my brother told me 
few years ago about going somewhere to play with their bluegrass gospel band and they began to unload their equipment and a guy walked up to him and he said, good thing you got a long sleeve shirt on. He said, they won't let you play here if you don't. Now that's, that's walking with the Lord right there, is it not? Long sleeve shirts. Man, how ridiculous. Especially when we begin to feel. Oh, that just put me a little closer to the finish line. And, and that indignation. That, oh, it's, it's all right. I know you young Christian. I know your pastor doesn't preach like that. Pitiful. Pitiful. It is in Christ alone. Timothy George, another New Testament scholar, said this. I quoted it to the men Wednesday night. When Paul came to realize in coming to faith in Christ... Or what Paul came to realize in coming to faith in Christ was not so much God's judgment against his wickedness. For that was a standard assumption among rabbinic Judaism. He came from a faith that was like that. But what he understood that he hadn't understood before was God's indictment of his goodness. Not just his wickedness. It is our goodness that falls way short as well. And when we begin to feel like that maybe we're kind of evening the scales. I, the, it permeates our culture. People who don't know. Who really are thinking that one day when they stand outside the gates of heaven that they got a set of scales there. They're going to put all your good on one side. They're going to put all your bad on the other. Man, could you imagine the anticipation of that? Waiting to see which way that little needle goes. Uh, boy, I wouldn't want to live like that. That's why Paul says, I rejoice. I died to all of that. I died to all of that. Because I can go ahead and tell you now how the scale thing worked out. Bad. Lost. Deserving of hell. That's how every one of us, for every one of us, it turned out. But in Christ, if we put our faith and trust in His work and His death on the cross, man, we can have eternal life. And, and I ha have to tell you, don't really take Paul's preaching from this verse as a gouge to get more crucified. You, you, and, and I know we all have things in our life that we still are working on. I, I got all of that. I understand all of that. But I want to tell you the presumption is in this verse is that that happens. That that's, that's something that has already happened in our life. That business of, well, I, I know I'm not where I need to be. I'm trying to get there. And, and I understand that's, that's what all of us would say. But I can tell you, the crucifixion of self is absolutely essential for anyone 
who wants to live for God. You don't need to look at it as it may happen in stages or that you're working on it or that you're getting better at it. Maybe for some here today, the best thing you could do is just say, God, that time has come. I want to die to self. I want to die to self. I want to live in you and I want you to live in me, Christ. I want to face one way with no more plans for anything else in my life. I'm sorry, God, that I treated you like an attachment to a life in progress. I want to give my life to you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray right now, Father, that you would help us to understand that we've heard the gospel today. And Lord, there are so many deceptions around what it means to be born again and how to be born again and what it means to be a Christian. And Lord, we have equated it with so many things like church attendance or, or quitting bad habits or, or straightening up our life or whatever it might be. God, I pray you'd help us today. Help us, Lord, to get past that. Help us to have a clear understanding of what Paul was trying to say to us. Father, I ask you through the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, clarify these verses we read today. Lord, I, I know I've, I've, I've not made them clear. I, I don't have the wisdom, the vocabulary, or the ability, God, to, to take these verses and, and exhaust the truth from them. So I pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, God, you would touch hearts and minds today. Lord, maybe there's someone here today that would leave with a peace like they've never had. Lord, that Paul's testimony touched their heart when he was able to be set free from that Pharisaical idea of of, of hoping and praying that you don't reject him one day, God. Lord, I pray you would help us. Help us, God, to realize as astounding as it sounds, Lord, that through your power and your might and your death on the cross, that, Lord, we can have eternal life. Help us with that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.